0: This is the Lead Speakers podcast with Scott Lloyd. In this podcast, you'll hear engaging conversations with everyday leaders, discovering their motivations, desires, and passions. Hear practical applications and advice for becoming the leader you've always wanted to be. Welcome to Lead Speakers. Hello, friends and family, and welcome to this edition of Lead Speakers with Scott Lloyd. So glad that you could join me on the podcast today. I am privileged to welcome my friend Corey Leak, I became acquainted with Corey a few months ago and we've had several opportunities to interact with one another. He is a leading voice uh, speaking out against the inequalities of white supremacy uh, in our nation and this is an important conversation for a time such as this. And today we're going to uh, listen to a conversation that I recorded with Corey a week or so ago about relationships within the church and how white supremacy and white privilege impacts those relationships. This is a very important conversation for any leader within the Christian church and culture. All right, Corey, I'm so glad you could join us. We tried to uh, do this a few months back and the uh, technology gave us, but uh, glad that uh, we're able to get together today, my friend.
1: I'm so glad to be here, man. Good, good to be talking to you. I look forward to our conversation.
0: Well, let me say, um, just sort of as a as a preface, a preface to our our conversation, that that it's it's my opportunity uh, and privilege to speak with all kinds of leaders, and I I met you a, a few few months back through a mutual friend, and was impressed with uh, what you're doing and and what you're saying, and uh, just uh, the caliber of, of leader that I've gotten to know, uh, in the few months that, uh, we've been honored to know each other. Um, but this morning I, uh, I was reading, uh, Austin Channing Brown in her book, I'm still here. And, uh, I was going through that chapter where she talks about being in school and sort of feeling like, you know, anytime there was a conversation about race or something like that, that she was the designated spokesperson. And, um, you know, it, it occurred to me that a lot of times when I have these conversations, I, I just want to say at the, the the preface, man, thank you for doing this. I know sometimes it, I can imagine um, that it must be exhausting uh, having white folks come to you uh, and having these kinds of conversations. But thank you for the work that you do. I, I appreciate it. Uh, and thank you for hanging in there with me.
1: Oh, man, thanks for having me. I appreciate the, the opportunity to have a conversation with you, man. When I met you, I, I had a mutual feeling of respect and and wanting to you know to have these kinds of conversations with you. You seem to be really thoughtful about them, so it's it's an honor to be here.
0: Well, speaking of what you do, um why don't you kind of um, tell our audience uh, a little bit about yourself? I know that you're involved uh, in social justice related issues. And talk a little bit about what you're doing and and how you got there.
1: So I moved out here to work at a a pretty large evangelical church. And in the process of working there, I was overseeing the weekend experience, basically. um, My background in in church work has been singing and worship leading. Um, And I found that there was a space for me in the Western evangelical expressions of, of Christian faith Because of the, you know, sort of the trend towards wanting churches wanting to be diverse, um, wanting to have diversity on their church staffs, wanting to have diversity in their weekend experiences and their expressions of their um, church services, and so I was at this church and I was, you know, reaping the benefits of, of having darker skin, but also being able to interact with white folks in a way that there was a mutual sense of understanding of what we're saying in our language and humor and, and, and culture, and and then in um, 2016, um, there was the back-to-back uh, murders of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, mm-hmm. and from that from that moment moving forward, my social media presence became very outspoken regarding issues of race in America and racism. And of course, with the election of the president uh, later that year, um, there, the, it's like the race conversation just escalated and has continued to do so. And I found myself uh, with some dissonance between what I thought was important about expressions of faith in the real world and what the church I was working at thought was important and ultimately wound up leaving there Um, more or less being asked to leave actually. (laughs) And um, then, you know, I just sort of went full on into um, blogging, writing. Um, A couple years after that started a podcast, I've been doing live weekend um, service, quote unquote services that I call uh, existential Sundays that are That are specifically designed for people that have been through or going through their own deconstruction and decolonization process. Whether people are deconstructing their faith or deconstructing their ideas about race and 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 what it means to be human, and certainly what it means to be American. So I've been just sort of trying to guide people through that process and and help people identify what they think and what they believe. um, Interestingly enough, today it's kind of something I fell into. That I just started asking questions on Facebook, and I'd find that all of these people were commenting, and they thought the questions were so provocative, and I honestly didn't think anything of them so I asked one today i asked I asked the question um, if if it, if an injustice triggers anger um is it is the issue anger or the injustice? I thought that was a pretty rhetorical question that wouldn't really elicit much conversation. last I looked, there's probably eighty comments of people just chiming in on those sorts of things. And so what I think that does is that it allows us as human beings to process our own beliefs and our own thoughts, but also to see what they look like up against someone else's thoughts and beliefs. And somewhere in there is, is a tension that I think is good that oftentimes uh, religious space will avoid tension. It's like we want to solve problems. We want to give answers. We don't want to create a place for people to be uncomfortable or have to wrestle with some of the deep rooted um, beliefs that they've had. And and so I, I, I think that's important and necessary. So I try to try to facilitate that in any way I can.
0: I think that's instructive and, and very helpful. And and I've been able to catch a lot of your content uh, via social media, uh, Facebook, especially, and I appreciate what you have to say. And you mentioned working for that particular church and, the um, lip service that was, um, you know, paid to unity. And I think there was a big move in the the late 90s and the early 2000s about this um, idea that, you know, our churches should be unified, uh, we don't see color, it's not about race, (laughs) none of these issues matter, but we're all one. Um, But as you get deeper below the surface, and, and sometimes those particular attitudes can be even more dangerous um, and um, harmful to people of color than people that are just outright in your face um, racist because they, they pay mm. lip service. Mm. But, but anytime you try to address those issues, um, all of the anger uh, comes to the surface. And your question was interesting today because um You know, the Bible says a lot about anger, and it says it talks about appropriate anger and then anger that swerves into sin. Um, So the injustice, um, I think, just to kind of respond in real time to your question and query, uh, to me, the injustice is the big issue there, because especially from white culture, white people in particular, you hear a lot of times, well, you know, we need to let that go. You're, you're bitter about that. Uh, You shouldn't be so angry. The past is the past. So talk a little bit about this paying lip service to, to unity and then follow, follow up on, on those ideas of anger versus injustice.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, man. I have so many thoughts that came to my mind as you were talking. And I'm, I'm currently reading a book called, um, uh, the Five Books of Miriam, it's a, a, a woman's commentary on the Torah and it's a fascinating read. And it's just walking through the first five books of the Bible um, in, and, and viewing it from the perspective of a woman. And what I find very interesting about viewing the text or viewing morality, viewing um, ethics through the lens of the most marginalized in a society, is that the answers to the questions are very different than they are when you ask people who are in power, people who are making the rules. So one of the fascinating things from um, one of the Levitical laws that I don't even think, I'd never really become aware of before reading this, was um, the it was the, the, basically the jealousy law that if a man was jealous, mm. that he could subject his wife to a public test of her fidelity, even if, even if he had no evidence. He has no evidence of, of her infidelity, but he is, according to this Jewish law, able to subject his wife to this, and they would make her drink this bitter substance that, you know, if she was lying, would dry her up. And, and, and just to, to, to view that through the lens of a woman, is so different than, it, I, I, would, I, would, I would think that it'd be much harder for a woman to say, well, that's what the Bible says and be okay with that. It'd be much harder for a woman than it would be for a man. And in the same way, I think that when we're talking about issues of race or we're talking about the issue of oneness in church or the issue of, uh, of, of bitterness and, and even this tension between justice and anger, it's usually white folks that have the, that focus on the anger instead of focusing on the injustice. So when Ferguson happens, for instance, the focus of white Christians is not on the fact that that's a, the, the Ferguson uprising was in response to significant injustice that was not the first time. It's not like that's the first time there was a, an incident where, where black, the black community was denied justice by the criminal justice system. Right. That's, a, that's a regular thing. So when Black folks respond in anger to those things, then the anger becomes the focus and we get to walk around with mantras like angry Black man or angry Black woman and those things are demonized and we just brush over the fact that, what is it that made me angry? And case in point, right now we see today that all over America, uh, white folks with with assault rifles have stormed Capitol buildings, Mm -hmm. have entered into those Capitol buildings with assault rifles, yelling in the face of police officers. And this is called by many of the white Christians who objected to previous protests from black folks. White folks are calling these protests peaceful protests and they're completely justified because the rights, they feel their rights are being infringed upon and that their rights are being denied. And so when, when their rights, when white folks' rights are denied, then to respond in whatever way is justified. But, any way that a black black person responds to injustice is demonized. And so I just I find that one of the things that I think is important for any person, but but certainly a person in America who who is uh, is white, is that there's so much to learn from marginalized people. God introduced God's self in scripture with oppressed people. By oppressed people, you're talking about a jewish Jewish people who knew what it was to have ancestors that were enslaved for four hundred years. Well, who in America is more familiar with that story than black folks are? So when Dr. James Cohn says that God is black, that totally resonates with me because I go, yeah, when you look at how God I and mean, look at the Jesus expressed himself on the earth consistently with the people who Uh, no one would think that God would be associated with. That Jesus is at a well having a conversation, not only with a woman, but with a woman who was a Samaritan. Right. To the absolute utter shock of of his disciples. And so I think that there's this staring us in the face in scripture is that if you want to see, or if you want to be a part of a divine encounter, usually that encounter begins within the proximity of, of some people who society has misused, mistreated, or somehow pushed aside, like the shepherds who were in Luke's narrative, the first people to hear uh, about the birth of the Messiah. So I think that uh, there's something to us peeling back our own lens and going, who is it that is less privileged than me? I need to be having conversations with them about God. I need to be listening to what they have to say about God.
0: And I know when we talk about these types of issues that they are all encompassing. I was um, communicating or responding to something this morning and I was thinking it's as if everything in particular in our nation is connected to this idea that white is right. So whether you look at the criminal justice system, whether you look at uh, education, whether you look at the economic system, It is hard to divorce anything in the United States of America from the fact that our economic foundation was built on the backs of black slaves, literally. Uh, We robbed uh, black people of their culture, of their heritage, brought them to this nation against their will, built the economic foundation that gave us influence in the world and yeah. now we want to lift our hands and say well that was the past we can't you know we
1: can't <laughs> about
0: that when we when we fail to realize that everything in our country that is happening now is built upon that foundation exactly. so it's 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 huge right it's a huge problem but if you are talking to White evangelical leaders, I know that's a problematic term, so let's just say white <laughs> church leaders, uh-huh. people people that are white, that are leading churches or parachurch organizations, and maybe they're just getting started and they, they really do want diversity. Where do they begin? How do they start? Um, where's a good place to get started? And how do you address this idea of wanting diversity for diversity's sake when all they're really saying, when you know in your heart of hearts, they're just saying, I just want some color up here so we can say we're diverse. Yeah, yeah.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, such great questions, man, and, and insights about America in the past and, and how, how that's used to weaponize racism, really, to, to continue to oppress people who are raising their voices about the things that are still happening in our society that are as a result of things that were set in place many, many years ago. Uh, but to answer your question about diversity and, and, and how a church leader could go about it, there's so much that comes into my brain when, I, when you ask that question. The first thing that comes to mind is that I think that any pastor or leader um, within the Christian space that is talking about diversity has to wrestle with the theology um, that, in that, that informs the way they view ethnicity. Um, they, there, there has to begin, it has to be something that is, is deeply formative and meaningful to the leader of the organization, to the lead pastor, to whoever's in charge. There has to be a, a deeply formed conviction that says, we cannot move forward with um, this, the, the work of, of God's kingdom without it being diverse from a leadership perspective and, and without us having a, a diverse and inclusive environment. And I think that, you know, and diversity and inclusion goes, so, so goes beyond race. You're, you're talking race, you're talking um, sexual orientation, you're talking gender identification, you're talking one that is often overlooked, you're talking about disabled people. Uh, and, and when you look at churches across America, certainly the ones that are uh, getting the hashtags and the quotes on Twitter, these are, I've, I've never seen a, a pastor at a conference in a wheelchair mm-hmm. be the keynote speaker. And so there is something to be wrestled with in our, in, in the Christian, Western Christian expressions of faith that, that we are putting people up front who fit a certain narrative? Who fit a certain mold? And we are uh, with. But, and what we're saying when we do that is that this is the default. This is what. Th- this is who you should trust to instruct you about God. And so I think if we're ever going to de- deconstruct that, we have to be asking ourselves as leaders, like, who have I made, Who have I made space for? in this culture that I've created in this leadership culture that I've created in the, in what I consider the the standards for behavior, because those standards for behavior also have cultural undertones to them. So who have I made space for? Have I made space for women in, in, in how, and how leadership is, is handed out in the organization? Have I made space for people of color? Have I made space for handicapped people to lead, not just to be here and not just to be a face and not just to run a department, but to, to be like leaders who who have been given the platform to speak where everyone listens, including the lead person. So I I took a a course through Cornell University on diversity and inclusion. And it was really fascinating to hear the the research that was done about how um, women and minorities are viewed in uh, corporate spaces. you and I both know that in large evangelical Western churches that they're run just like corporate organizations. When, in fact, when I talk to a lot of my friends who work within those churches, they sound exactly like somebody, if I was talking to somebody who worked at Apple, there's, there's really little to no difference in, in how they talk about their work and culture. Right. And it was interesting to hear that, for instance, if, if a white person, a white male within an organization, um, is successful, that research shows that the people around that white male believe that that success is due to his skill, his ability. If that white male fails at a project or in a, for, through a, a, in a quarter to meet whatever expectations there are, that, that is due to some unlucky events beyond the control of that white male. Now, you put a woman or a person of color in that exact same scenario, and their success is viewed as some factors beyond their control. There's this idea of a tailwind success where you're successful based on events that were beyond your control that positioned you to be successful. But if that person fails, it is because of their lack of ability or skill. That is something that is woven throughout the understanding that americans have about what it means to be successful smart intelligent efficient uh it's it is it is what is so what when i was working in churches what was so impressive to them about me was that there is there is a bit of a dissonance within our culture within our within our own implicit understanding of what it means to be black when you hear me talk when you when you when you read something i've written when you when you when you listen to me explain something you go wow I, I'm considered an anomaly. And so second to, second to the theology, the, the wrestling with the theological framework that affects whether or not we have diversity is for that leader to go through their own implicit bias, tr- like uh, uh, some sort of test, some sort of evaluation, some sort of understanding and self-awareness of in what areas and in what ways am I biased? And in what ways is my lens affected and in what ways am I treating people or, or the expectations I have of people marginalizing them to the point that they could never be successful within this organization? Because a lot, lots of people have people of color on their staff, but are they actually thriving and are actually successful? That all 100, 100% depends on whether or not that senior leader, if that senior leader is white, is willing to do the hard work of internal self-awareness when it comes to bias and, and their own ideas about race.
0: And I really find it fascinating, um, some of your thoughts there, because I'm sure that you saw this in the church world. I've seen it in the church world and in the institutional world, that people of color, Black people in particular in our culture, are rewarded by white leaders and white culture on the basis of their ability to imitate proximity to whiteness. In other words, you, you just mentioned it there, right? Your mm-hmm. the, the way that you talked, the way that you were articulate, your ability to navigate white culture—you were considered an anomaly, right? You 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 were easy to get along with. Um, yeah. So, but the moment—and I—I you raised the question of black women earlier, and I think they face this more than even black men in our society because the moment the moment you um accentuate black culture or you dare to disagree um you are seen as divisive as angry um whereas your white counterparts would be well you know you're just pushing back you're questioning you're you're asking good questions and so, as long as you towed the line, so to speak, you were rewarded. Uh, but the moment you pushed back against that, then um, you know that everything fell apart. Um, I don't know if you've been watching the um, uh, the Last Dance uh, on ESPN.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah.
0: They, you know, I watched one of the episodes last night, and they were talking about that particular time where Michael Jordan was uh, encouraged by his mother to support a black candidate in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, you know, Republicans buy shoes too. And he kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. took the easy way out. And, and um, yeah. um, so, you know, you think about Michael Jordan and that's what, you know, the, the documentary was pointing out that Michael Jordan never really got involved in those kinds of social justice issues. And so everyone pretty much liked him. Why? Because in a lot of ways he was very close to emulating the white culture And as long as he did that and did his job to entertain the masses on the basketball court, everyone liked him. But the moment, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and we see this from athletes today, Colin Kaepernick comes to mind. The moment you deviate from doing your job uh, to entertain all of us white folks, well, you know, the president of the United States is, you know, get your ass back on the field or whatever. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Well, and to that point, I mean, you know, it, it's so interesting that you just said that because there's there's something about whiteness that um, has to have an, an absence of conflict or confrontation. Right. So when you talk about the proximity to whiteness, as long as a Black person is not raising the issues that affect them, then there can be peace among us because for white folks, there is no issue that directly affects me. What, what is... What is the issue that directly affects me? Right now, the issue that directly affects white folks is the feeling that they can't move around as freely as they wanted to because of a virus. Yeah. But for black folks, the daily existence of a black person is to live under the um, residual effect of chattel slavery and and Jim Crow laws of, of the 50s and 60s. And so for us, there is always something wrong. And what white folks love, at least in the evangelical spaces I've been in, mostly, is when we don't raise those issues. And at case in point, you mentioned Colin Kaepernick and I had the very uh fortunate but strange set of circumstances where I actually got to meet and, and hang out with him for a couple of days. And we were in the gym because we have a mutual friend. We're in the gym working out. Of course him and this other friend of mine are there. We're far stronger than I am. I'm I'm just there just because you know I get to be there with some pro athletes. Right. And, and walking around this gym, first of all, Colin Kaepernick's, I'm 6'3. He's about 6'4, 6'5. I mean, he towers over me. He's got the giant afro picked out. So you you know this is Colin Kaepernick. Everyone in the gym is is enamored and they're take some people are trying to take secret pictures and people are coming up to him and talking to him. And one guy in particular said, um, have you gotten any offers yet? This is, a, I think this was like 2018 or something like that when he had been on the league for a little while. And, 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 the guy, and the guy basically told Colin, he said, hey, hang in there, keep working hard and you'll get your chance. And Colin and I were talking after and he said, they think that he says that because he doesn't believe in racism. He doesn't understand that, the, that, that there's racism, which is why I'm not in the league right now. Wow. And so to be, in, to be white in America, is is to live this blissful existence where there isn't racism affecting you. So you can think that if Colin just works hard, he'll get another chance. Mm-hmm. You can think that if black people would work harder, that they would, they, w- they would be able to have better housing and better schools and better healthcare and better jobs and better opportunities. You can think that there'd be less violence if black people just stopped shooting each other. If there wasn't black on black crime, there would be no issues. You can think all these things because you live this blissful existence that everything is fine where that has never been the case ever for black folks in this country and even the black folks who've achieved success which is another uh to me another form of white folks controlling the narrative on race conversations because we can talk about race when i invite you to talk about race yeah but if i don't invite you to talk about race i don't want to hear about your suffering i don't want to hear about what's happening in your community those are things that like we have to be welcomed in to have those conversations. We have to have them the right way. We have to uh, get permission for those things. And, and I think that that's kind of where you find a lot of the pushback against, you know, black activists who try to maintain a sense of, of Christian faith. It's hard, it's become difficult over the last several years for, for black men and women to say, yeah, I'm a Christian because it's, it, our experience is so policed.
0: Corey Leak, uh, Existential with Corey Leak is the podcast that yes. you can find that anywhere you listen to podcast.
1: Yes. Anywhere that you listen to podcasts, you can find that. And uh, I'm, I just wrapped up season two, we'll be starting season three in June. Um, had some, we've had some great guests. We've had Science Mike on the podcast, Andre Henry, Linda Sarsour has been on the podcast, Shane Claiborne. And for any of your guests that want to, uh, know what kind of guests I've had sometimes it's just myself just sort of sharing my thoughts and processing things, but yet wherever you listen to podcasts, existential is there.
0: If someone wanted to reach out to you, maybe ask a question or support you, I know you have a Patreon page, things of that nature. I encourage mm-hmm. everybody to do that. um what's the best way to to contact
1: you? Probably the best way would be uh any of my social media channels at this point uh, is a is a way to access me you can, I'm on Facebook it's Corey Leak. Uh, I'm on Instagram at at Corey Evan Leak. And I'm on Twitter at Corey Evan Music. So, um, you know, that's where the best place to reach me and and message me there. And I'll I'll certainly try to uh, connect with anyone that reaches out.
0: Very cool. Thanks so much. This has been the Lead Speakers Podcast with Scott Lloyd. For more information, check out scottlloyd.com and share this content with a leader in your life today. Lead Speakers. Lead. Speak. Persuade.